Welcome to JP Morgan's Research Wrap Podcast. I'm Dan Silver, Senior U.S. Economist, and I'm joined by one of my colleagues, Murat Tasha. Now, over the past month or so, we've seen some upside surprises in a lot of the U.S. data. Uh, there's still reasons for slowing ahead, uh, in part because it's going to take time for higher rates and tighter financial conditions to weigh on the economy. Uh, but it does look like the economy is on stronger footing now than we had previously thought. And this supports our view that a recession isn't coming soon. Uh, one of the most important surprises we've gotten recently, uh, last week we did get an upside surprise in terms of job growth for September, uh, which did look very strong. We also got upward revisions uh, to past figures. And we've also seen upward revisions uh, in the recent annual revisions released by the BEA uh, on their NIPA data uh, related to the GDP report that we got late in September. Uh, and these upper divisions came, one, in terms of corporate profits, which is good for the business side of things, and then also in terms of household saving, personal saving, uh, which does bode well for consumers. So what we saw in these revisions is we saw a higher saving rate for the most recent periods. Uh, for the 2Q reading uh, for this year, uh, the saving rate was revised up from about 4.5% to 5.2%. So it looks like there's more saving in, in hand right now, or more saving going on right now than we had previously thought or what was previously estimated by the BEA. And in these revisions, we also saw a lower level of saving uh, taking place as we were heading into the pandemic. And what we've been doing over the past few years now at this point is we've been comparing the, the saving done across the pandemic to a pre-pandemic baseline. And now what we see is that that pre-pandemic baseline looks weaker or lower, and the recent levels of saving look higher. So when we add up those effects across the pandemic, uh, we see a significantly different picture for the excess saving uh, right now than what we had seen before the pandemic, or sorry, excuse me, before the revisions took place. Um, so these calculations are somewhat subjective. Obviously, we don't know what saving would have been uh, if the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, but I think you can take a variety of different approaches and get similar results. And I think no matter how you look at it, it looks like there was significant saving built up early on in the pandemic. And this came when a lot of fiscal stimulus was supporting incomes and saving was also held back by uh, virus-related concerns and virus-related restrictions. So there was a massive amount of saving or excess saving built up early on. And then over the past year and a half or so, this saving has been drawn down um, as uh, consumers have spent more um, and that fiscal support has faded away. So in the updated figures that we have right now, it looks like excess saving uh, currently stood at about $1.2 trillion in the second quarter of this year. Um, and that means it probably could last into next year. Um, before the revisions, it looked like ha there had only been about $0.4 trillion left over uh, by the second quarter of this year. And that probably would have been, up, been used up entirely this year. So it looks like there is a lot of savings still in hand for consumers. But a question we get a lot is who has this saving? Is it really just held by wealthy people and it's not really going to be spent? Uh, so, Marat, can you tell us what we're seeing there in terms of uh, who has the saving and where it is? Uh, well, uh, then this number is actually corroborated by uh, uh, other data sources from the Federal Reserve Board uh, and especially the uh, distributional financial accounts. Uh, and it actually shows that it's very broad based. I mean, this behavior in uh, abundant liquid savings, liquid assets by, you know, held by households is uh, pretty much across the board. Overall, for instance, we know from these financial accounts that checkable deposits uh, held by uh, you know all households rose more than three trillion between the end of 2019 uh, up to the last data point in uh, second quarter in, in uh, of this year. Um, and overall, liquid assets, if you include savings accounts and money market funds, uh, 
it's actually above uh, 4 trillion, uh, close to 4.4 trillion. Uh, and this, uh, you know, the distribution accounts use um, most recent uh, survey of consumer finances and, and where households sit in the entire wealth distribution. And if you look at either the bottom 20 percentile or the top, uh, it's, it's essentially a very broad based uh, increase across the entire wealth distribution. Um, of course, these individuals have different marginal propensities to consume out of this wealth, right? So uh, the theory tells us that uh, most likely uh, those people who are uh, more, um, you know, credit constrained uh, would be uh, having a higher uh, marginal propensity to consume, uh, meaning they would uh, spend more out of this liquid wealth uh, if they need or if they face a shock. Uh, so, so the entire... Um, Distribution must, uh, you know, sh show some of these effects, but not every individual across that uh, wealth distribution is going to give the same response in terms of supporting their current consumption with this additional liquid assets. Um, but, but overall, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that this is uh, this is not driven by a uh, you know a tiny minority of the households. Yeah, it does. It does look pretty broad based across across a different income spectrum or across the full income spectrum. And then, you know, you mentioned kind of different marginal propensities to consume across different income groupings. Uh, you know, we generally talk about wealth effects as being how we estimate you know, how much of wealth do people actually spend? Do people just sit on it? Do they save it? Do they go out and spend it? Um, so what are we seeing or what are we thinking in terms of wealth effects right now? Yeah, I mean, these liquid assets we're talking about is essentially one form uh, of the, the entire wealth that households carry, obviously, right? Uh, it, uh, but we have seen other forms of wealth, like you know, um, you know, for instance, equities or um, um, real estate, uh, you know, increase quite a bit uh, over the uh, course of the pandemic uh, up to now. Uh, even though there are you know some fluctuations around it, so this what happens that uh, that aggregate wealth uh, induces um, some additional opportunities for households to consume out of uh, that. It, you know, additional wealth uh, to support their current consumption. Uh, this theory tells us, uh, you know, uh, this would be a function of um, the essentially the entire lifetime resources for individuals. Uh, the empirical estimates of these effects vary over time quite a bit, uh, and it depends on the data sources you look at. Um, but a general uh, and a sort of a simple way. Uh, the literature usually handle this uh, is really look at the aggregate time series data on uh, essentially person consumption uh, and uh, various different wealth measures. Uh, and what we find, for instance, currently we estimate something around three to four cents out of a dollar of additional wealth uh, is supporting uh, current consumption. So the MPC estimate uh, we find uh, currently is somewhere in that range. Uh, but as we have uh, sort of referenced in our recent note, uh, this estimate varies quite a bit over the uh, you know the past decades, uh, and uh, the how precise these estimates also also change over time. Uh, one particular interesting episode was the post GFC period, where these estimates actually came down quite a bit. So the estimated wealth effects, um, uh, you know, were relatively small. Uh, and uh, that had, you know, a lot to do with uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, idiosyncratic reasons uh, about the nature of the recession at the time. Uh, 
um, you know, household balances were not in the same position as we have today. Uh, the deleveraging uh, that happened afterwards uh, might have changed this picture, and and that's part of our, I think, uh, uh, explanation why these wealth effects uh, could have come back again. Uh, but another way to look at the current estimates uh, and the, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, a more sizable uh, recent estimate might be that uh, out of this additional wealth that have accumulated over the recent past, uh, a big chunk of that wealth uh, uh, is actually coming from this liquid savings uh, that you talked about earlier, right? Uh, and the literature have uh, shown us that uh, major purpose to consume out of different forms of this wealth can be different. Uh, housing wealth uh, and financial wealth uh, could have different implications for margin purpose to consume. Uh, and in general, the estimates suggest that um, um, mo the, the more liquid form of the, this wealth would imply higher MPCs. Uh, and that might be one reason why we are, uh, you know, seeing in the data these higher wealth effects. Uh, but regardless, uh, it's, it's, it's a relatively elusive concept uh, to sort of gauge. Um, but, um, you know, at this our current estimate suggests that uh, we might have some sizable impact uh, in terms of wealth effects right now. Um, you know, whether or not uh, that would sort of, you know, uh, persist obviously is going to uh, depend on how uh, variable uh, or how transitory households face these felt uh, yeah, components. Yeah, I think the, the elusive nature of the, the wealth effects and the, the uncertainty around them is, is pretty significant. And I don't think we want to get too precise in our estimates. But as you pointed out, I think there's a certainly a logic to why wealth effects could be higher now uh, than they were coming out of the, the financial crisis and also some empirical evidence to back that up. So uh, it does look like we're probably going to see at least some wealth effects kick in here, uh, even if you know, we don't know exactly how big they're going to be. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit, and I think we've, we we definitely have some reasons for optimism, but I think there's also some maybe some clouds on the horizon as well. Um, there are some drags that are probably hitting the economy right now, or might uh, start to hit the economy soon. Um, you know, in terms of the wealth side, you know, I think the the latest data from the Fed. Uh, goes through the second quarter, and we've seen stock prices come down over the past few months. So we're probably going to get some of those wealth gains eaten away, um, you know, over time. And we also have a student loan or student debt issue that's been hitting the economy lately. Um, student loan payments, uh, or a large amount of student loan payments, uh, were delayed or, or put on hold during much of the pandemic uh, as one of the fiscal supports to help uh, help boost the economy and help deal with the pandemic. But uh, payments are now coming due. Um, for many people. So debt is kind of on people's radar. And uh, Murat, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing on the debt front for households here? Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, if, before that, if I have a second, I think we should uh, highlight, uh, you know, in, in the background of all this, we shouldn't miss the fact that the, the main important component in this sort of, uh, you know, what would support consumption is really the income uh, and the labor market side. Uh, and you know, we, you know, all those, all this debate uh, we are having is really independent of that. But aside from that, and going back to your question, uh, on the uh, we have seen uh, we have some data from the New York Fed uh, that re relies on um, uh, consumer credit 
uh, data. And that shows a recent uptick in uh, some type of revolving debt, like credit cards and auto loans. Um, but looking at the data and comparing it to sort of pre-pandemic norms, uh, it, it doesn't look like it's, I mean, it's definitely increasing, uh, but it doesn't look like it's, uh, you know, as exceptionally high relative to those levels. Uh, and it's definitely uh, not uh, uh, as high as we have seen uh, during the GFC. One issue I think that's uh, um, somewhat related to your student loan comment uh, is that uh, because of the, the forbearance, uh, delinquencies that we normally had seen uh, on the student loan debt side uh, have actually tanked to zero. Obviously, if you if you don't need to pay now, that uh, delinquency picture might uh, we think might change. Uh, uh, I think that's one thing that uh, we should be able to see uh, in the data pretty soon. Yeah, I think you're right in that you know there are some measures that have weakened lately, and and certainly. And we need to keep monitoring things over time, particularly on the student debt front. But I think in the, the data in hand, in, in most ways, uh, still looks pretty pretty solid in terms of the, the household debt picture. Um, so I think that that's kind of a good summary for for where things are. Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of good news for households, good news for consumers, and kind of where we stand right now. But still, reasons for uh, some slowing or for some weakening as we go forward, uh, and we'll continue continue to monitor things over time. So thanks a lot for listening. And we'll pick it up next time on JP Morgan's Research Wrap. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023, JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on October 12th, 2023.